You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Let's open Psalm 126. As has been our custom walking through books of the Bible, we've devoted ourselves in the, in the summers to psalms. And in one way or another, I've shared with you that like, in this sense, the songs of the summer for the Christian, or at least for our church, I hope, are, are the songs of the psalmists. And, and so I want to invite you there into to Psalm 126. And, and, and it's, a, it's a brief psalm. We'll, we'll run through it and read it very quickly. And the second thing that I shared with you this, this last week, and you've heard me say before, is, is the psalms are, are the language of prayer, and the language of worship and lament, the, they're the hymns, if you will, even that Jesus and, and his disciples would have sung together, like, right, even in the, in, in the, the Last Supper, that it's the, the, the gospel writers tell us that Jesus and the disciples sang a hymn before they left, and, and I have to assume there was probably some psalmic kind of a hymn that they sang. One or another of the psalms they would have recited together, chanted together, hummed together, and sang together, and and these are the works of art, the works of poetry that give language to the life of faith. John Calvin says that in many ways the anatomy of the life of faith is found in the Psalms. Just, there's no experience that you or I will have as a Christian that we're not given help in putting to words and to a song and, and even chant or declaration in the Psalms. Every single emotion or experience that you and I will experience as believers in Jesus has been laid out for us and to be understood in the Psalms. And, the, and Psalm 126 finds itself in, in a section of Psalms, beginning in Psalm 120. Remember, we, we went through Psalm 119, a reflection of the longest hymn in the Bible about the goodness and greatness of God's word to us, his law, his scripture, his revelation. But the immediately following Psalm 119 is the beginning. And you'll see, if you want to look at, at Psalm 126, look at the Psalm before it or after it. And from Psalm 120 all the way to Psalm 134, you'll see 15 Psalms in a row that are all, they all have the same title, a Psalm of Ascents. Quite literally, ascending, to go up. And so, this is the language of faith for the Christian. These would have been sung together for, as, as the people would have made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. We'll see quite literally that referenced here in this psalm. As they would have made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate, celebrate many of the feasts, the, the Feast of the Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, right? Think of Jesus and his disciples coming back to celebrate those things and, and miraculous, amazing things happening while they were celebrating these feasts. But on the way, that is literally going up, because Jerusalem sat on a hill that is Zion, and because that, that hill was above everything else, you can't go to Jerusalem without going up. And so quite literally, these were the songs or hymns that they would have sung maybe on the way or, or as they worshipped on the way. Or as they arrived in these feasts, they would have sung or recited these songs. They're going up. Quite literally, for the first readers, they were on their way up to Jerusalem to worship God, to commune with God, to experience the atoning forgiveness of God. But also, they're not just physically and literally walking up. There's, there's a spiritual ascent. They're going up to God. And so, therefore, they have great value for the church. We are constantly, if you think about it, weekly at least, coming together. 
And so the language of the Psalms of Ascent are, are, are at, least, at least twofold, if not multiple, right? They're a spiritual preparation for us to meet with God, to commune with God. And so every single week, here's, I mean, I don't, there, should be a, there should be like a radio station or maybe a, some of you can come up with a mixtape, all right, of the songs you, you listen to on the way to corporate worship on a Sunday. And they would be these 15 psalms, right? Wouldn't that be great? Instead of the screaming and fighting that happens on the way to this building, you, oh, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways, Selah, right? Wouldn't that be better? So on one hand, we're constantly coming together, and there ought to be a sense of, as we'll see here, a sense of anticipation that we're going to come together, and we're going to meet not just with one another, but some, for some powerful way, we're going to meet with the Lord. And where two or three are gathered in, 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 in my name, Jesus says, that's where he's going to be. So we're going to ascend, gather together, and meet with the Lord. Maybe you didn't expect that this morning, but that's what we're here to do, to meet not just one another, but the Lord. But secondly, there's a sense in which we are in the life of faith, ascending to heaven. Think of it this way. These are the songs that you sing on your way to heaven. These are the songs that you and I sing. These are the reflections, the language that the psalmist gives us as we prepare to one day meet God himself. So beginning in verse 126, as we reflect on why we gather, who we are, the language we use as a church, and the upward call of God in Christ. Beginning in verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then it said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like strings, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. May God, by his word, prepare us to enter into his very presence. As I shared with you, the language of the Psalms is the language of the life of faith. In the same way that I would encourage you to read poems or engage in like seeing and studying art about things you want to learn about, so also the psalmist in artistic and poetic form tells us how we talk about God and how then we talk to God. It gives us the language. It gives us a script. In fact, you'll see one of the practices of, that we have as a church is regularly reading or reciting or thinking upon the psalms because they best call us to worship they call us together to understand how we ought rightly encounter God, cry out to God, speak to God. And like so many other psalms, the language we find here in Psalm 126 is the language of lament. Crying out to God, did you hear that? For restoration in verse 4. That he would restore God's people. And that even though they were living in tears, did you hear that? 
that one day God would replace their tears with shouts of joy. More than once we saw the language of shouting. Right? I, I, I don't know how to address this, but for the last couple of weeks, we saw a couple of weeks ago, uh, the psalm that we reflected upon invited us to shout as praise. And we saw it again last week that there's a blessing for those who know the festal shout. And I, I don't know that, I feel like I do a lot of shouting when we get together. Uh, but I, I want to I invite you to let some of that rub off on you. I don't know how this is going to work, but there ought to be some like liturgical shouting. Um, it's going to feel weird at first. And yet, if someone is like, shame on you, you'd be like, shame on you for not reading the Bible, right? <clears throat> Jesus juke him. So if in any given moment, in the course of a worship service, it would be appropriate for us, I don't know what shout looks like for you. I don't know. I'm a woo person, right? You know, like, woo! You know, that's, I know, it's weird. And biblical shame on you for thinking I'm weird, right? But notice the language of laughter even. Remember I told you the psalmist teaches us how to talk to and about God, and he invites us in some profound way, even in the midst of sorrow and despair and disappointment, to laugh and then shout. Shout in joy. So there are two parts of this particular psalm, just six brief verses. The first three is a, is a reflection upon all that God has done, an expression of gratitude and then there's a, a, a turn in verse 4 to a prayer to God. And then this anticipation, a declaration beginning in verse 5. Those who, right, shall, declaration of anticipation. And so as we think about this, like, as we prepare to ascend, one day you and I, because of Christ, are invited to the very presence of God forever and ever and ever. There will be expression of joy and wonder at God's restorative work. But in the meantime, you and I, even through tears, live with expectation that this is not the end, that God is going to finish his work and we're going to come home singing songs of joy, shouting at a plentiful harvest. The God we see in the first three verses that's delivered and restored his people because of his great steadfast love will faithfully continue to be with them all the way home. So we begin then with an expression of wonder at God's restorative work when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Now, now you can reflect upon me, if you will, to uh, to 2 Samuel and 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, and you'll see the, the language of, of lamentation, as we, we saw uh, over a year ago, and even the language of Jeremiah, of what it was like when these people who had been given a kingdom on earth and a, a, a Davidic dynasty that lasted four centuries, when it crumbled and the Babylonians wiped them completely out, there was great and awful despair. And so, when a couple of generations passed, and the Lord in his mercy brought them back, right? You can read about this in the book of Ezra, and we'll see even, I think, in the next year in the book of Nehemiah. They're brought back to enjoy this place that God had promised to them. The captives were restored. The fortunes restored. They made their way back to Zion. And it was like those who dream. So, I'll give you a few we statements, the language of faith, that we, I'll say more about that in just a moment, not just I, but we, 
begin to have. We reflect upon the kind acts of God for us in the past. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, it's hard to translate, but there's this reflection upon how God has delivered them. God was faithful to them in the past. God had brought them out of captivity. The people writing this or singing this or thinking on this were no longer in exile. They were no longer living in captivity. God had seen fit to, to bring them back to the promised land. And for them, it, it seems here that it was like a dream. So what we find here is that they have reflected upon what God has done for them in the past. So much that even the nations in verse 3 marvel. Or verse 2, that, that God, wow, God has done great things for those people. And they say, indeed, the Lord has done great things for us, and for that we are glad. And so we are the people that we sense there's a, a cosmic past. There's a cosmic redemption that God has brought about for us. It's reflected piece by piece in the Scripture. From the Exodus, where people who, who didn't deserve God's favor, God delivered them out of captivity. And then they again rebel against him and wander away from him and wish they could go back to captivity. And yet, what does God do? God delivers them into the promised land. They squander that, worship other idols, trust in lesser things. And the story keeps going. He gives them a king. The king and his family squander that, rebel against God, and the people follow along. And what does he do? He, He delivers them out of exile. Time and time again, God shows his faithfulness by not giving up on his people. And he restores them. He renews them again and again and again and again ad infinitum. He constantly restores us to the point where the greatest restoration that we experience is that God came to be with us and for us in the perfect life and atoning death of Jesus and the victorious resurrection He has restored us. He has done something for us we could not do for ourselves. And so we reflect on that. There's a cosmic past you see in the first three verses that lead to what I would say is like a a communal future, a communal anticipation. As if to say, God, I know that's what you do. I know you're the God who restores and renews. So now, beginning in verse 4, now come restore me. Restore us. Restore us here and now. Do in me what you have done in the past, and do in and through me something that is on full view for the nations. And this is now how believers pray. We want to experience the kind of deliverance that even the nations hear about it and marvel. And we experience joy, shouting, singing, and praise in our own community. We reflect upon kindness that God has shown us in the past. Now, this is what this means for us, that The life of faith is the life of gratitude. The language of faith is always the language of gratitude. This is incredibly important. This will be the most countercultural thing you can imagine. Uh, We presently walk and live in a culture where the where the air we breathe is the air of entitlement. We're we're entitled to the best, the greatest. Like we it's we deserve it. And, and when you, if you don't think that's true, do you see what happens when, when, when you take the thing that people trust in and feel entitled to when it feels threatened? They lose their mind. If, you don't, if, that, if you're like, I, I can't imagine that. Just, come on, let's hang out. I'll pull out a computer. We'll just scroll over, we'll scroll over social media for like a 
two seconds, and you will see people feel the thing they're entitled to threatened. And I want you to know right now that is the most godless disposition you can imagine. The life of faith repents of entitlement. The life of faith embodies gratitude. We have so much to be thankful for. And so here's what I would tell you. If you struggle to feel gratitude, let me invite you to how the Bible helps us to grow in that and gives us the language to plow through difficulty and and the sense of entitlement that, that rises up in us each and every day. If you struggle to be grateful, start by asking the Bible what you deserve. Start there. What do I really deserve? Bible, tell me exactly what it is that I am entitled to. What is it that I have earned? And so here's what you'll find. The Bible makes very clear over and over and over again, the wages, the thing that we have earned by sin is death. The way I would paraphrase it is like, you and I deserve hell. Everything else, it's a gift. It's a gift. Because in Christ, this is as close to hell as you and I will ever get. But apart from Christ, friend, this is as close to heaven as you'll ever get. So by all means, for you, apart from Christ, YOLO. Get it all. Hoard it all. But for those of us in Christ, this is as miserable as it will be. We deserve punishment. We deserve hell. And let me help you with that. If you still struggle to to believe that, just stop for a moment. What's the one thing about you that you hope no one in your life or in this room finds out about you? It's not hypothetical. Even now, if you need to ask the Holy Spirit to like to work in you in a profound way. This is the work of gratitude. What's the one thing that causes you the most shame, most regret? What's the thing that you're praying no one finds out? What's the thing you're praying never comes to light? Now imagine that I announced it to everyone in this room and to everyone in the world. Maybe it's something you did. Maybe it's something you did that you you never thought you were capable of doing, but you did it. And when no one was looking, you did it, and you've covered it up even. Maybe it's just the way you are. Maybe it's how you're lustful, that you can't stop objectifying people. Maybe it's how you're greedy. You always want more, and you're discontent. Maybe it's how you cheat. Maybe it's how you're self-righteous and judgmental towards other people. And down deep, you think you're better than everyone else. Maybe it's because, maybe it's the way that you always want to be the center of attention and you, you feel anger towards anyone else who has attention that you feel entitled to. Maybe it's how you don't even like people at all. Even now, you don't even want to be here because there's people here. You don't even want to be near them. Maybe it's how arrogant you really are and prideful you really are. Maybe it's how cowardly you really are. Now you're seeing yourself rightly. Now you're seeing yourself as you ought to see yourself. And I know it's in our our culture to say, well, that's not me. That's not really me, which is a 
really crazy thing to say, right? And that's not what, what I'm, I'm sorry. Was, is this a sci-fi movie that was like, is this a, is this a weird, are you possessed by a demon? Like what? Well, that wasn't me. You heard that? No, friend, ask yourself, what's that thing you wish no one would find out about you? Ask the Bible what you really deserve for it. Now you're seeing yourself rightly. Sure, you can think of maybe people that you think are worse than you, but friend, that's comparing, that's con- that's comparing sin to sin. We don't compare sin to sin. We compare sin to the perfection and holiness of God. Now that you've asked the Bible what you deserve because of your sin, ask the Bible what you're given freely in Christ. Now this will take recitation and practice. As you ask yourself what you really deserve because of your sin in light of a holy God. Remember, your sin isn't awful because it's like comparatively bad to other sin. Your, your sin is bad because of who is sinned against. Now, you know this is true, right? Like you can jump over your friend's, you know, you could hit a ball over into the friend's yard, jump over the fence. That's trespassing, but eh, what's a, what's a trespass between you and your neighbor? On the other hand, I don't know, if you, if you jump over the fence at the airport, you jump over the fence at a naval base, you jump over the fence at a prison, now all of a sudden, it's the same thing you just jumped a fence. Well, it's a trespass between friends. No, the, the trespass is great, not because of how bad the trespass is. You just jumped over a fence. It's whose fence you jumped over. And a trespass is powerful and great because of who is sinned against. And friend, all of our sin, small or large, is against a perfect and holy God. And therefore, you and I deserve his wrath and punishment forever and ever. How do you pay for a sin that is infinite in magnitude other than to pay infinitely? But now ask the Bible in light of all of that, even though that's true for you, what is it that you are given in Christ? Remember that thing, that thing you did that you don't want anyone to find out about? That was the moment God loved you anyway. You know that thing that's true about you that you really don't want to be true and you don't want anyone to find out about you? That's the you that God sent his son to die for, to claim and adopt as his own forever and ever. And that fills us with the kind of gratitude that's in the first phrase, doesn't it? Do you remember when the Lord restored us? You remember when the Lord restored us who are wandering, rebellious, sinful, and we deserve death and punishment, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. And that, in the second phrase, we find out it's like a dream. It doesn't even seem real. What we find in that second phrase then, as we reflect upon in gratitude what God has given us that we don't deserve, We're overwhelmed, but it doesn't even seem real. It's too good to be true. We're like those who are dreaming. We're overwhelmed when we think about God fulfilling his promise to redeem and restore people who wander away from him. I'll confess to you, the second phrase is a a profound rebuke to me and an invitation to experience the kind of renewal that I think the psalmist is inviting us to experience. I am naturally cynical and skeptical, just by and large. 
And I, I regularly hear, even, even, man, even as I'm like saying to you how good and merciful God is to you and to us, it's like it, as it reflects off the back wall into me, my first response is like, that, that sounds a little too good to be true. I have to be pretty naive to believe something that ridiculous. What am I, a child? And Jesus says, you better be. And so this is a rebuke to me. That it's an invitation, though. I love how, I love how natural and, and freeing and honest the Bible is. And, and he even says, look, when that happened, those people were like me. They were like, this, this can't be right. Like, this, this can't be real. This seems unrealistic. I'm like Thomas. But here's what I would tell you. The Lord has been patient to me like he has with Thomas and like this psalmist or like the people reflected upon by the psalmist. The people who look at God's goodness and his great acts and the good news of God's saving grace in Christ and they're like, that's silly. That's a nursery rhyme. And all I would tell you is the Lord is incredibly patient with them. He's been incredibly patient with me. And I'll invite you, if you're a skeptic, or you're a cynic, look, the psalmist gives us language to describe that. This seems too good to be true. And yet I will tell you the Lord is patient. His patience will outlast your cynicism every time. My own tip to that is, as we see lately, or as we later in the, in the psalm, is they, they begin to experience joy and it began to like settle in on them. I would just invite you, if you are a skeptic, if you are a cynic, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Um, but do something for me. You're skeptical of everything else except your own skepticism. You're cynical about everything else except your own cynicism. Try applying your own cynicism, or try applying cynicism to your own cynicism. Right? Isn't that what cynicism is? It's scoffing, the psalmist tells us later. It's like, that's ridiculous, right? And, and just, you're very selective and, and, and unfair. You should apply that to your own. When, when you go, you should immediately go, right? You should, like, fly back at each other. Again, the cynical people in the room know exactly what I'm talking about. That, that seems silly to the rest of you, but they're like, yeah, that's true. You're cynical about everything else but your own cynicism. You doubt everything else but your doubt. And the psalmist says, that's okay. That's a good place to start. Because what will happen is the Lord will overwhelm your cynicism. Did you catch that? With laughter. With shouts of joy. Now, I want to apply this before we kind of move on to the, to the next little bit here. Notice the language, the nouns throughout the entirety of this psalm. Walk with, walk with them through me. When the Lord restored the fortune to Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the, the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Verse 4, restore our fortune, O Lord, like strings in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out with weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bring his sheaves with him. Notice, the language of this psalm is we, not me. I want to invite some of you, if you're like me, you've kind of like swam in the streams of individualism your whole life. I want to invite you to what the psalmist describes here as a communal or corporate joy. There is a joy that can only be experienced when it's shared. And the joy he has here certainly is individual and personal. 
Certainly is that. And yet the joy the psalmist wants to, wants to invite you and I into the language of faith here is the language of we and not me. And so before, before we go any further, there's, there's a part of you probably that's like, yeah, I need to. You're probably like, yeah, I need to be more like this. I, need to, I want to do this. And I just want to stop you. Stop. No I prayers in this psalm. Until first, you've prayed we prayers. And so all I want to ask you is what this, this psalm begs is, who is your we? Who is it? I know you and Jesus got it all right, right? You and Jesus is your homeboy, right? Good for you. Who's the we? And so the New Testament covenant, covenant community that is the church is the we. I want to share with you, like some of you have questions about what it means to be a member of a church. man. I've, for us, covenant membership is just our way of taking these we's and ours seriously and saying, Connection Church is the we. You should join. You should jump in on this action. You should hear what happens for us. We are like those restored. We're, it's so good. It's like we're dreaming around here. And our, excuse me, our mouths are filled with laughter. Our tongues are filled with joy. And we're glad because the Lord has done great things for us. So here's what I would tell you. Join in. Join in the action, man. Join the family. And if it's not Connection Church, that's fine right? We are not a perfect church, okay? We just point to the perfection of Christ. And even if we were perfect, you would ruin it if you joined it, right? Because then you got here. If not Connection Church, that's fine. Then go find a we somewhere and say with the language of faith, God, this joy is too good to keep to myself. This joy has to be a we joy, any more than you would like, I don't know, cook dinner at your, like, with your family only for yourself. Right? Some of you have actually done that maybe. You're like, that should have done that, right? Like, of course we would share blessing and wealth and prosperity with our family. So friend, jump in. Jump in. Stop thinking that the, the language of faith is only I and me. It's we. And here's something wild. There's a joy that comes in the we that doesn't come in the me. Because when it's I and me, I don't know if you've noticed, I have bad days. I have awful days. And if it was all between God and me, I'm sunk. But do you know who picks me up? Who has picked me up? My cause for gratitude? When the I and the me of my faith fails? I'm looking at you. It's the we. And there are many times I gather here on a Sunday and you guys are able to declare what I personally am not ready for, right? And the we, you lead me into songs and laughter when I by myself can't. My cynicism and my skepticism takes over until I gather with the we and then I'm like, you're right. (laughs) How selfish of me. So look at the we. We shout, we sing, we celebrate, and then we are the cause for the nations to marvel. So we get the news of God's great acts to the nations. This is the mission of the church. This is the mission of the life of faith, that God has done something for you and for me, given us such a blessing that we can't keep it a secret. 
Our mouth was filled with laughter. Our tongue was shouted to joy. But then because of what God was doing in us, it says that they were watching what God was doing amongst his people, restoring them to Jerusalem and Zion. And even they marveled. They were like, holy smokes, did you see those people that got wiped out by the Babylonians? Surely that's the end of that people, right? That's, that's, that's the end of that. And yet what? Even the nations were like, hey, did you hear about, did you hear about the, the Israelites? The Israelites moved back in, into Jerusalem. And the nations were like, what? Like the language of Deuteronomy, not because you're great, says the Lord, but because you're small and weak and frail. That's for my glory, I'm going to redeem you. And the, the nations looked at it and they go like, I can't see how anyone would have that. And that is what you and I are invited to experience and share with the nations. We live on mission to our neighbors, to neighborhoods, to cities, to our region, to our country, to the nations. That every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered around the throne marveling. This little psalm here is going to be the psalm that will be sung, Revelation 5 tells us, forever and ever. That by God's mercy, he has shed the blood of his only begotten son such that the nations will be gathered around his throne. And then we recite, yep, the Lord has done great things for us. But look at the turn in verse 4. We are also aware of the present reality of a sinful, fallen world and will experience limited fulfillment in this life. And the way that's expressed is in prayer and petition. Verse 4, restore our fortunes. Did you hear that? The Lord has restored. Now for these people maybe coming back to Jerusalem, you see this in the language of the minor prophets. They made their way back, but the second temple that was rebuilt was just never as awesome as the first. And they were stuck living in the consequences of sin and rebellion. And everywhere they looked, they could remember the consequences of their own rebellion and sin. Man, this isn't like what it was. Remember what it used to be like? And so for the Christian, the same is true. But we just look further back. We look all the way back to Eden. We said, do you remember what it was like when it was just us and God? And now look at the fruit of sin. Now look at the consequences of sin. And we live in a broken world where our constant posture is of lament. We regularly look to God and cry out to him for renewal. This is incredibly important. If you've come in this room, like sometimes when we sing songs that are joyful and glad, I know for some of you, like if this is maybe new for you, I want to just kind of key you in on something. It's not because we're particularly upbeat or happy people. We're not. There are many of you, and I know this, I've watched it. There are many of you who have come in here on a, on a given Sunday and you've worshiped God, you've raised your hand, you've lifted your head and your voices, and I know that you have just endured one of the worst weeks of your entire life. And if you're here this morning and it just seems like we praise God because everything's okay, you haven't heard the good news. We gather in sorrow. We don't gather because it's all to, we have it all together. We gather because we don't have it all together. And we come together and plead with God for renewal. We plead with God to grant us new life. And the way new life, renewal, and revival happens is in prayer.
Think of it this way, and we shared this when we first planted some seven years ago. When our prayer becomes the most important thing that we do together, then renewal, new life, is right around the corner. And so, friend, there's a quote from a, a mentor of mine. He says, no one's ever gotten famous in the prayer closet. Right? Like, no one's ever gotten famous for crying out to God for help. But you are heard by God, and you'll get God, and that's better than anything else. And so that's why what we do when we gather, whether it's in a gospel community, a meeting, or it's bathed in prayer. Have you noticed that? Like, we just we start in prayer. We try to end in prayer like this. We just pray. We pray, we pray, we pray, we pray. Now, here's the catch. This is a place where many of you might be tempted to feel a lot of shame. And you can do that in a broken, fallen world, right? And here's what I mean. I've never heard in my whole life someone come to me and say, like, I just prayed way too much today. I've never heard that, right? Like, I've never heard someone come to me and be like, I just shared the gospel with too many people today. I've just never heard that. Right? I've never heard someone come and say, like, you know what? I was, I was, I just advanced the vision and mission of our church too much today. Just too much. I've never heard those things. And that's because in a broken, fallen world, those things won't happen. And so it's easy here to just heap a bunch of shame, right? This would be the place where maybe in your past, maybe your religious history, someone has just at this point intended like, you guys, you need to pray more. You know you're not praying like you should. Yeah, right? You need to share the gospel more. You, uh, you know who you are, right? And maybe you felt that. But notice, we don't have to pray. We get to pray. The world is broken, and yet God has left us a lifeline. In Christ, we can now take our petitions to God the Father. And even when we're too afraid to do that, when we can't even put those, word, those words out, you know, we find out in the New Testament that Jesus takes those prayer requests for us. And so, friend, prayer is the seed planted one among many, that comes into great harvest. And so in verse 4, the turn in lament is to look to God for renewal. So friend, here's here's what I'm saying. Before we get even to the end of this, like, you can today cry out to God for restoration, renewal. You can cry out to Him for comfort, for rest, for forgiveness, for freedom, and He'll give it to you. He will give it to you. And then, like streams in the Negev. Now, this is, you're going to have to Google this later, but the picture here is of a wadi. I don't know if, maybe you don't know what that is. Um, I've only seen one in my entire life just once. A wadi, think of a very, a, a desert area that, but because it's in a lowland, in the rainy season, tons of water comes rushing out of the highlands and floods the plain. Uh, now, in, in the United States, that might be what we call like a flash flood. That's the closest we've gotten, Right? But there are areas, specifically if you think about the, the context of this psalm in, in northern Africa or in the Middle East, there are places that are, that are arid. But then once a year, the rains from the less arid place flow down and flood, like inches to feet of water that just rush across and bring an amazing amount of life. You'll see this, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're Planet Earth fans in our, in our family, so I, I invite you to you know, learn about the Serengeti, for example. There are parts of the Serengeti that are the same way. There's no rain, but it rained over here and it comes rushing in and becomes amazingly fertile once a year. And out of nowhere, an arid place, there comes rushing streams of water. And that's the kind of prayer and renewal that the psalmist is inviting you and I to experience. We cry out to God 
And he responds. And that is the posture, the posture of petition and prayer in a broken, fallen world. We know that there will be limited fulfillment in this life. And so we long to look outside of this life for restoration. I'll give you a quote here that blew my own mind and might blow yours. It's from Richard Sibbs. I, I commend him to you. I, I, I commend to you him especially in this. He says, It is better to be in any place with Christ than to be in heaven itself without him. All delicacies. If you needed to stop for a minute and think about the delicacies and luxuries that you enjoy in this life, right? What's the thing you can't live without? Right? Mine is mine is ventilated seats. I I I I I Got to drive a car with air-conditioned seats. Oh, my. Can't go back. Right? Right? I don't know. what. I, like, what's the luxury you can't live without? Right? Regular bathing. That's right. The most luxurious thing you can imagine. All of the delicacies you can imagine without Christ are but or as a funeral banquet. Like, sure, it's a feast, but it is a commemoration of death. And so you and I live in sorrowful anticipation. We cry out to God in a sinful and broken world. And we have a prophetic and eschatological assurance. That's a fancy word for what comes at the end, right? It's what we believe about what happens in the eschaton. That is the end of all history. And we know that at the end of all history, there we have an assurance that God will be true to his promise to deliver his people and grant to them what only he can grant. And so hope in this life is a wasted endeavor. But it's a preparation for the hope that is to come. We have assurance that God will come and do this. And it's our motivation. I mean, just stop for a minute. Like, think about how grace and hope motivate us and change us. That's what the scripture teaches. Versus how shame and guilt motivates, motivates and teaches us. What's the last thing you've done because of guilt, fear, or shame? Right, maybe you're here. That's it. Well, here's what I know. That, that will last for about this long. And guilt and shame make a terrible motivator. And I hate that because like so many of you were raised in a religious household that that fundamentally was the motivation. Shame on you. Feel bad about that. Right? Do better. Be better right? And what does the psalmist say here? That's not our motivation. Our motivation is that God will fulfill his promise. God will do for us what we cannot. And we're motivated then by hope, such that those who sow in tears will ultimately have hope that they will reap with shouts of joy. We're going to go out weeping. That's what it's like living in this life and bearing a seed for sowing, yet we'll come home with shouts of joy, bringing in the sheaves. That is bringing in bundles of a harvest, heavenly harvest of joy, the fruit of the Spirit, but also eternal harvest of people that will gather with us around the throne. That's the harvest. But in the meantime, we are living in the fertile soil of planting. Now, these are agrarian terms that maybe need to be explained. We're, I love Sioux Falls. We have, you know, we have lots of amenities, but you're never more than like a, a couple miles away from a cornfield, Right? So agrarian terms still make kind of sense to us. But maybe if you, were, if you grew up in an, uh, like an agricultural 
uh, kind, of a, kind of a family or town, this will make sense. But when I say that this is a fertile place, I want you to think fertilizer. Maybe some of you compost for your garden. You know exactly. Like, this is the fertile place. That sounds great, doesn't it? But those of you who are like on the farm, you know what makes, you know what makes ground fertile, right? Death, decay, poop. <laughs> and so when you look around, and maybe that describes your life, stop for a minute and realize the sorrow we experience is a place where we are sowing seeds. This is a fertile place for it, isn't it? That is, it stinks. That's what this life offers. And notice that we, we take those things, our tears, and we sow in them. This is profoundly helpful for me. Um, there's kind of two temptations. A mentor of mine helped me remember this even recently. That like when we, when we experience our emotions, the culture, this one of licentiousness, tells us to worship our emotions. And that's not new for us, right? Because we saw in, in Jesus' brother uh, wrote us a letter, Jude. Remember that? The, the way he describes it, he calls it sensuality, right? Whatever feels right, do it. And our culture says, worship your emotions. Whatever you, if it feels right, do it, right? Express your feelings. Like, whatever, however it feels, that's truth. Worship your emotions. But maybe if you're more kind of legalistic, self-righteous background, religiosity says you deny your emotions. Like your sadness and sorrow, you just poof. You're good. Don't, you know, don't say a thing. That's not cool, right? And, and those tend to be the errors. Maybe, maybe you fall one way or the other that like when emotion overtakes you, you immediately are like, you're overwhelmed and you're like, I've got to get this out or I've got to deal with this. And, and you'll do anything to justify it because you were, that, you were feeling that awful and, and, and you, you worship that emotion. Or maybe you're over here and you have negative emotions and sorrow and you need to hear the lamentations of the, of the Psalms and hear like, no, that, that's, that's what it's like living in a fertile well-fertilized life, right? It's awful. It stinks. It's terrible. And neither of them will get you what the psalmist says will grant us the greatest hope. Our deepest sorrows are seeds that we plant. You don't worship your emotions and you don't deny them. You plant them. You plant them. And the the picture here is like, think of it this way, right? Like you're down to your last, you're in an agrarian society and and you have to like live off of what you you raise and and you're down to your last ear of corn, right? And you're thinking to yourself, well, I can, well, we can eat, right? Or I could plant this. I could plant this in the well-fertilized soil and see streams of rushing water make it fertile, and there will be sheaves to bring in unlike anything we've ever seen. Now let me wax philosophical as I wrap up our time here. Philosophers engage in what's called the problem of evil. The problem of evil. That is the question of how can an omnipotent and good and benevolent God allow awful things to happen? How can there be a good and perfect, omnipotent, omniscient, omnibelevant God and evil in the universe? How can the two coexist? How is that possible? And philosophers have a million different ways of answering it, but I want to share with you what the New Testament tells us. 
is the answer to the problem of evil. You see, the problem of evil is Christ on the cross. Think about it. The most innocent, perfect man that has ever walked the face of the planet was betrayed, falsely accused, unjustly sentenced, tortured, and executed for all to see. There is no greater injustice. There is no more evil thing than for the God of the universe to enter in and for us to cry out, crucify him, kill that one. That's evil. That's wicked. To take the perfection of God himself and to hang it on a cross. But here is how Jesus describes it. So some came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida and Galilee, and asked him. They were Greeks, by the way. We wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And here's how Jesus responded. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, all right, Jesus. All glory is going to come to you. This is going to get good, right? You think to yourself, this is, good. this is going to be awesome. Jesus is going to be glorified. Man, I wonder what he's going to do. I, man, I wonder where the smackdown is going to happen. Jesus is going to bring glory to himself. And this is what he tells him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life, remember the language, in this world, will keep it for eternal life. So if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Did you hear that? The glory that Jesus showed to them was the glory of a seed planted. And that seed, the psalmist tells us, was planted in weeping, wasn't it? And yet, what is the answer to the problem of evil? That the perfect and spotless and sinless Son of God died on our behalf, an innocent man who willingly went to the cross. What's the answer? It's the resurrection. And friend, that's the answer to all evil. That is the in light of the sowing and fertile, rotten soil, that is the new and fresh life that brings bountiful harvest. That is the place where you and I find new life. What hope can there be in this life than that there is one who has authority over death? What greater hope can there be than the one who has gone to death on our behalf has the power to bring us new life? And he has restored us to himself such that now all who hope in him, who look to him, experience, did you catch that? <laughs> Shouts of joy. So I want to invite you. If you're in this room, maybe, maybe you, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I want to invite you to verse 4. Today, I want to invite you, cry out to God. Ask God to restore you. Ask God to grant you joy in Christ, forgiveness, freedom from shame, Ask God to give you these things. And even though now, I know for many of you, right now you sow in tears. The life you live is like a life lived in tears. And what does it say that he will do? The promise that he is sure to keep because he's kept 
and his promise in the past to restore the fortunes to Zion, he will certainly bring all of his people with him. He will never forsake us or leave us. So my invitation to you this morning is simple. Cry out to God. Do something radical. Trust that he can restore all that's broken. He can actually grant you the thing you've always wanted. He can make that thing, that awful thing you don't want anyone to know about you, a trophy of his grace. He can make the deepest shame and sorrow, the thing sown in the deepest and loudest of weeping, into a cause for the deepest satisfaction, joy, and celebration. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you and you alone grant us life. I thank you for the psalmist's words here. God, I confess even my own inability to, 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 <laughs> to communicate this kind of joy. I don't, I don't have the ability to, to, to contain it or even to point to it rightly. And so I ask that even now you would work a miracle of grace that then in this room, you would work through this gathering, this coming together, the we that long to see you to restore us. Would you now grant by grace a gift, a gift we do not deserve, but a gift that we might be grateful for and find new life in? For those in the room that come in here sowing and weeping, I thank you for them. Thank you that their, their tears are not ignored, but they're seen. I pray that those in this room who are disillusioned would look to you for hope. And I pray that those in the room would, who are saddled with despair, would you, would you grant them comfort? For the sinner in the room, would you, would you grant us forgiveness? For those who are beaten down by shame, would you give us acceptance? Might the life we live be marked by planting seeds, seeds that we anticipate will at one point, because of Jesus Christ, be like an empty tomb, a cause for celebration. We thank you for this gift you've given us in Jesus Christ. Amen.